Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Some of you uh, know that um, a couple of weeks ago I was able to go to General Assembly, that is the annual um, kind of business meeting of our denomination, the PCA. I just wanted to let you guys know that I have uh, written a, a blog about uh, what happened during that week and um, what was particularly significant about this year's General Assembly is that we spent a lot of time talking about the issue of women's roles in the church. Uh, a study committee report has been released in our denomination about that issue and so uh, I've written about that just kind of giving an overview about what happened and so you're all welcome to read that. I just want to make sure you know that it's there at our website. If you go to the front page of our website and just look for the blog, click on the blog and it should be the first article and uh, I invite you to read that. Also need to say that I, uh, I neglected to mention that John Bow is also going on the trip to El Salvador. Sorry, I'm sorry, Isaac Bow. Christine told me that. Isaac Bow, not John. John's son, Isaac. And so uh, the bows are away uh, this morning, so please keep uh, Isaac in your prayers as well. Okay, please uh, open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Colossians, chapter 4. <clears throat> If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to look along one, there are white paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and um, this passage would appear on page 573 of the white paperback Bibles. I learned recently of a survey that was conducted in Great Britain um, where a question was asked to many people, and the question was this, what is your happiest memory? And this group took all of the answers that were received and kind of typed them into a computer to find out the word that was used most frequently in describing their happiest memory. And the word that came out, a little bit surprising to me, the word that came out most frequently used in describing uh, the happiest memory was the word home. Home. H-O-M-E. Now, why do you think people might use the word home so often to describe their happiest memory, certainly probably not because of the structure of the house, the physical structure that they happen to live in, but most likely it was because home is where family is. And for many of us, our happiest memories have to do with our family. Now, I, I know that's not necessarily the case for everybody and that some people have grown up in unhappy family situations, so I acknowledge that. Um, but many of us have very positive family experiences. Probably most of us are kind of a mix between the two, positive and negative. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has a very strong kind of home component to it. Um, you know, we know the gospel, and you hear it every Sunday here during the confession and assurance. You know about how Jesus has died to atone for our sins. You know how the death of Christ propitiated or turned back the wrath of God against us. You know how Jesus' death and resurrection secured our justification before the law of God. You, you know how Jesus' work on the cross reconciled us to our Father so that the one we were once estranged from we now call our friend. But here's another aspect to the gospel. 
It's the doctrine of adoption. And what the gospel tells us is that when we come to believe in Jesus, God transfers us or adopts us into his family. And so now we have a new family as Christians, a spiritual family, and we call God our Father, and we call fellow Christians brothers and sisters, and we look forward to a final destination, a final home, the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again. And so we should really be thinking of the church not so much as an institution, not so much as just a a building that we happen to meet in, and not so much as a social club, but as a family. I mean, do you think of your brothers and sisters here at New Life as a major part of your life in the sense that they're, they're your family? Now, we don't mean to say that our biological family is, is to be discarded. You know, that's what the cults do. Cults come in and they say, leave your family and come and devote yourself fully to us. That, that's not what we're saying. Family, biological relationships are still very important. But there is a certain family relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ that's going to last longer than your earthly family relationships here. And so it's important for us to think about this. And so this is what we're going to be talking about here today using uh, uh, the, uh, the great uh, disco hit from Sister Sledge from back in the 70s, We Are Family. Um, but that is true about us as Christians. And so in this passage here in Colossians chapter 4, 7 through 18, we're going to learn here a little bit about what it means to be a family. Now this is, maybe strikes you as kind of an odd passage. It's a very easily overlooked passage. It's not a very exciting passage at all. But um, again, there's something to be learned here about what it is to be a family. In fact, the word brother is mentioned three times in this passage. And uh, you'll hear that as I read this. But what we'll see here is that with privileges, the privileges that come along with being part of a family, there are also responsibilities. There are tasks that need to be done um, as part of a family. So let's stand and read God's Word here, Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, there's that word again, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. By the way, that Jesus is not Jesus Christ but a different Jesus who was later called Justice. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. 
and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. God in heaven, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. One of the reasons that we're approaching this particular issue today is um, to continue with something we've been doing here the last few Sundays. Most of you know on June 25th during the evening service, we commissioned a church plant here out of New Life, our very first daughter church, and we sent away 30 people for City Hope Fellowship, which will be ministering in downtown Muncie. And so that was a pretty big, uh, pretty big hit for us to send away uh, 30 people. And so we're going through here at New Life a little bit of a, a restart, in a sense. Um, we're still kind of reflecting on what life is going to be like with these 30 people gone. And so for the last few Sundays, we've just been kind of thinking about that, looking at various aspects in the Scripture. So like two weeks ago, we looked at uh, Acts to see the biblical foundation for church planting, just to remind you about why it was a good thing that we sent out those 30 people, why it was a biblical thing. And then last Sunday, we looked at the book of Judges, and we learned about the blessing of weakness. So as we feel a little bit weakened here as a church, we looked to the scriptures to see how God's strength is most often made very clear in our weakness. And hopefully you took some encouragement in that. And so today now, we're just thinking, okay, where do we go from here as a local congregation? And so that's why we're thinking about this issue of family, family privileges and responsibilities. So just, just two things here that I want to show you. First of all, we're going to look at the church family at Colossae. All right, so let, let, let's just look at that. That's the name of the city to which this letter was written many centuries ago. And um, we learn a number of things about the makeup of this particular church family. And so, first of all, we see that there are a lot of different kinds of people in this family. So let, let me just show you what I mean uh, as we look through this text. Verse 14, there's a guy named Luke. Now many of you have heard of Luke because you've heard of the gospel of Luke. And yes, this is the same Luke who wrote that gospel. Not just that gospel, but Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And we learn here in this passage that Luke is a beloved physician. This is how we know that Luke was a doctor. So some think that maybe Paul brought Luke along on his missionary journeys because Paul himself struggled with some illnesses, so it was good to have a doctor uh, on board nearby. But here we have Luke, um, a very, uh, you know, we would presume to be an educated person. Um, Luke is a, was a historian. His writing in the book of Acts is highly regarded as a very accurate historical account of what happened in the early church. And so here we have a very uh, skilled, perhaps educated person named Luke. But in contrast to that, we have in verse 9, one named Onesimus. Now, you might know his name if you know about the book of Philemon in the New Testament, another book written by Paul. Onesimus was a slave who belonged to this slave owner named Philemon. 
Philemon and Onesimus fled from Philemon, somehow got in touch with Paul, apparently heard the gospel from Paul and became a Christian. So in Onesimus we have one who's basically a fugitive. He is on the run from Philemon, and yet we have Paul here in verse 9. Look how he refers to him, our faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus is a brother. I mean, he's a fugitive. He's not quite like Luke, the doctor and historian, but he's part of the family because he believes in Jesus, and so we call him brother. We look at verse 10, and we see uh, a man named Mark after the reference to Aristarchus, someone in jail with uh, Paul, and so that's an important thing to consider here. Paul is writing from prison. That's why at the end of the passage he says, remember my chains. So Paul is accompanied by Aristarchus, but he also mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now Mark is a, another familiar name. Mark is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and what is significant about the appearance of Mark here is the fact that Mark and Paul had a bit of a falling out. And you might remember this story from back in Acts chapter 15. What happened is that Mark was going along one of the missionary journeys and somehow decided he didn't want to do it anymore and he bailed on the group. And a little later, Barnabas came along and said to Paul as they were about to start on another missionary journey, hey, let's take Mark with us. And we see that maybe one of the reasons for that is that Mark and Barnabas apparently were related. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas wants to bring Mark along with him, but Paul says, no way. That guy bailed on us. We're not going to take a chance of him doing that again. No, Mark's not coming. Barnabas says, yes, he is coming. And Paul says, no, he's not. And a dispute erupts between Paul and Barnabas, and you can read about it in Acts 15. And so they decide to go their separate ways. And so it's a bit of an encouragement, isn't it, just to see that the kinds of disputes that we enter into frequently today actually took place then as well. But here we see a remarkable thing about Paul's attitude toward Mark. He says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. So, you know, there must have been some specific things that needed to be said about Mark because of this past event. But what Paul says here is if he comes to you, Welcome him. Welcome him. Now, we don't know all that happened, but apparently there was reconciliation. Forgiveness extended. They probably got together again, worked out their differences. And not only now is there reconciliation between Paul and Mark and Barnabas, but Mark has been restored to ministry. And isn't that encouraging to know that when we start ministry, we might stumble, we might make some mistakes, we might do dumb things. We might be told to step aside for a little bit and to give some time for us to mature, but that doesn't mean that's the end. There's opportunity as we grow and get closer to Christ and mature, and there is the blessing of being restored. And that's what happened here to Mark. We can also talk in terms of different kinds of people about the different races here. Um, in verse 11, you see an obvious reference to Jewish people. These are the only men of the circumcision, a reference to um, uh, people of the Jewish race. Verse 11, Jesus, who was called Justice. Probably he changed his name to Justice after he came to faith in Jesus. Perhaps thought it was you know, maybe not appropriate for him to continue 
being called Jesus. And so out of respect for his Savior, changes his name to Justice. But here is a, a Jew, but later on we see many Gentile names, and so we see these two different races, Jews and Gentiles, um, mixing here in this church. Do you see all kinds of people, different kinds of people, um, at work in this particular family? J.C. Ryle says this. He says, one of the strongest evidences of the truth of Christianity is that people of such different education levels, different personalities, different races, find themselves with a marvelous oneness of heart and character. That is a, a remarkable thing, that we can run into people who are so different from us in so many different ways, and yet there's this instant commonality, an instant connection we have so much in common. I experienced this when I went to China and taught at that seminary last year. I mean, there I was in this foreign country, foreign people, foreign language, foreign culture. I mean, it just felt totally out of my element. But when I got to that seminary where I taught and was able to meet the Chinese people there, I just felt an instant kinship with them because we shared so many things, even in the face of our differences. We shared a, a sense of our own unworthiness before God. We shared a, a, a love and appreciation for God's grace to us in Jesus. We shared a desire to submit ourselves to the authority of the word. We shared a love for Jesus, and we shared a common desire to serve the church, to be involved in the family of God and to serve. So different kinds of people united in the gospel, one of the amazing distinctive characteristics of the family of God. But the second thing I want to show you here is that there's different kinds of tasks as well. So a lot of these people are doing very different things. So Tychicus here in verse 7, what's his job? Well, he's like a courier. God has sent him, put this letter that Paul has written into the hands of Tychicus, tells him to take it to Colossae while Paul is in prison. And Paul says, you know, he's going to update you, and he's going to tell you all about what has been going on here uh, with me and, um, and Aristarchus in prison. So Tychicus has this particular job. He's a communicator, a liaison, an ambassador that is sent by Paul to the church. In verse 12, we see this man named Epaphras. Now, he has an entirely different duty. Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So Epaphras is this man who has this passion for prayer. He is not one easily dissuaded from the responsibility to pray. You know, the sleepiness apparently doesn't bother him so much, the temptation to always do something else. No, Epaphras struggles to pray. I mean, he gets down and gets gritty about it and makes sure that he prays. And what he prays for is not just that people would be healed of diseases and that people would get jobs, but he prays for their spiritual fruit. He prays that they would be mature. He prays that they would stand fully assured in the will of God. What a wonderful example for all of our prayers and how we should pray for one another as members of the family of God, Epaphras, in verse 12. And then we see this woman named Nympha, verse 15. And we see the church met in her home. So Nympha, 
obviously had a house. And she wanted to use her house in service to the family of God. And so she offered it up and said, hey, if you want to meet in my place for worship services, come on. And she opened up her home. And the church came in and met there. And then we have this one peculiar mention in verse 14. This person named Demas. But look how, look how Paul mentions this. He's talking about Luke, the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. There's almost this little bit of a dismissiveness about Demas. You know, we learn so much about other people in this passage. We learn about what they do. We learn about where they're from. We learn about what they're like. But not about Demas. Yeah, Demas says hello too. You kind of get the feeling that Demas is really not that involved. Demas is not really that connected to the family of God. He, He hangs around a little bit, but we don't know much about him. And the reason that's significant is that if we look ahead, 2 Timothy 4.10, here's what we learn about Demas. Paul writes this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas apparently gets to the point where he says, I'm, I'm done with this church stuff. I'm done with Christianity. I love what the world has to offer too much, so, so long. Maybe it's reading too much into the text to make this connection, but I just think people who are not connected to the family of God are a whole lot more likely to turn from the faith than those who are. So Demas is mentioned here also. Now, last thing here as we think about the church family at Colossae, the kinds of abilities. And I just love how we don't hear Paul say, oh, so-and-so here, you know, is so charismatic. And, and this person over here is just brilliant. And, and this person over here is so good-looking. And, and this person over here is so funny. I mean, those aren't the adjectives that are used to describe these servants. What, what are the adjectives that are used? Here they are. Faithful, servant, hard worker. Faithful servants who work hard. That, that's the kind of person who has a place in the family of God. That's the kind of person that God is looking for to serve in the family of God. You don't have to have a particular degree. You don't have to have a particular IQ level. If you can be faithful, if you have a heart of service, you want to work hard. And by the way, I'll just say, this is a hardworking church. It is. You guys are hard workers. And if you ever wonder, why am I working so hard? I don't seem to get any benefit from this. Nothing seems to be happening. Nobody seems to notice. Let me just remind you here of 1 Corinthians um, 15. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, there's that word, that family word again, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Nothing you do in service to the family of God and to the church ultimately is in vain. It is noticed by God and brings honor to him. So, the church family at Colossae. Now, let's, by way of application, here's what I'm going to do, is think about the church family at Yorktown and talk a little bit about how all of this might apply to us 
as a local congregation. Because, you know, with every family, there are certain responsibilities that, that, that various members of the family have, right? I mean, somebody's taking out the trash, and somebody's walking the dog, and somebody's doing the dishes. I mean, any well-running family has some kind of assignment of responsibilities involved. And when that doesn't happen, and sometimes it, it doesn't happen, the house gets messy, and generally somebody's upset because they feel like they're doing all the work and others aren't, and there's kind of a general sense of upheaval in the family. Well, we have a family here, and you know, we try to think of responsibilities and tasks for three to seven people in a family. It's not too difficult. But when you're talking about responsibilities and tasks for two to 250 people, then it gets to be a, a little more of a challenge. And so what we have done here at New Life is we have organized this church under um, the categories of five core values. And so you hear us talk about this a lot, particularly from uh, the pastoral prayer. And so for some of you, this is going to be complete, total review. For some of you, you're going to think, yeah, I recognize these things, but I'm, I'm glad this is getting straightened out. For some of you, this might be brand new. But I just want to take some time just, just to tell you while you're all here and we're all together in the room, how new life is organized. It could be that uh, maybe less of you really know this than I realize. So five core values that I want to just you know, show you. Here's the kinds of things, the kinds of tasks and responsibilities that are undertaken to make this church work. All right, so let's do this. Five core values. The first one is adoration. Core value, that is something we, we value, something we think is very important. Adoration, that is worship. That is what we're doing right now. Sunday morning worship is something we value. We think it's important. In fact, we think that this service that takes place on Sunday mornings ought to be the high point of our week as Christians. The chief thing that we look forward to and prepare for, our number one spiritual priority, ought to be what takes place in this room on Sunday mornings. And so that takes a lot of work, actually, <laughs> to make this happen. Uh, we have musicians who lead us in music and rehearse and practice. We have people in the sound booth who are making sure the slides are changed, making sure the song lyrics are up, making sure the lights are on. We have ushers and greeters, people saying hello to people as they come through the doors, handing out bulletins. Um, we have children's church going on at this very moment. We just sent the kids out. Well, there's volunteers, there's hardworking servants who are with those children right now, teaching and caring for the kids. There's a nursery, and there are people back right now at this moment in the nursery taking care of children so that we can be here together. We have an interior design team who makes decisions about the aesthetics that we see in this room, and uh, including the, the design on the cross window here behind me. You might notice that changes from time to time, particularly when holidays come up. There's a team of servants who work on that. It takes a lot of work to make sure that things go well on Sunday mornings. So that's one of our core values, adoration. Oh, by the way, just so you know that it's scriptural to worship, here's Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
Um, by the way, you'll notice too, the core values are um, notated by the first five letters in the alphabet, so no excuse for not knowing the core values, A, B, C, D, E. So A, adoration, B, belonging. Our second core value, that is community, fellowship, friendship. This is something we value. We want to make this happen here in this congregation. Here's what Jesus says in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Friends, there's no way we can obey that command if we're not together. Right? This is not rocket science. And quite frankly, I don't think we can obey it very well if we're only together just on Sunday mornings. Some of us come in, we're a little bit hurried, most of us are on our way to lunch, totally understandable. I mean, that's the way it goes. But if we're going to know each other and love each other and build friendships, it's going to take more than that. So, we have various ministries in place. We have a hospitality team. The hospitality team oversees what goes on in the kitchen. The hospitality team is the team organizing the fifth Sunday fellowship that we heard about uh, on July, the last Sunday in July whatever that is, the 30th, um, the, um, after the church planning commissioning service a couple of Sundays ago, we had a reception, and um, the hospitality team oversaw that. So the hospitality team has a lot of work to do in making sure that there are opportunities for us to get together and eat together and fellowship. We have a welcome team. They're behind that welcome center right outside the door, and the welcome team makes sure that people are warmly greeted when they come into the church, particularly visitors, and newcomers. We have um, a ministry called Young Adult Ministries that is designed primarily to allow college age and young adults, 20-something people, to have an opportunity for fellowship and and Bible study. And uh, that ministry is in great need, by the way, right now. We have nobody chairing that ministry since Josh and Hannah Katner uh, have moved away. We have an events team here. The events team plans um, just social events, opportunities for us to get together, hang out, have fun. We had the Golden Goose Awards here a couple uh, Fridays ago where the junior and senior high shared with us the videos that they had made and the events team contributed to uh, setting up all sorts of decorations in here and, and did a wonderful job. And so the events team is thinking about ways to get us together so we can connect, make friends, and belong. Belonging. Third core value, compassion. Compassion, that has to do with our mercy ministries. And so that was the focus of the pastoral prayer that Felix just just led us in. Um, We are a people who have received outlandish and abundant mercy from God in the gospel. And the only natural response to receiving mercy is to give mercy to seek ways to show mercy to others. And that's what our mercy ministries are all about. And so here's Matthew 25. Jesus says, um, he's quoting people talking to a king, and he says, the people say this, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you? When do we see you naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king says, I say to you, you did it. To one of the least of these, my brothers, when that happened, you did it for me. That when we serve those in prison and hungry and without clothes, we're we're serving the king. We're serving Jesus. And so mercy ministries have a major role here. We have Reach Yorktown, which reaches out to the hungry in 
Yorktown. Um, we have uh, Kids Hope, where we send mentors into our local schools to spend an hour a week with children there who the teachers have um, discerned need some attention. We have an Elmcroft ministry that goes to Elmcroft Assisted Living and spends time with the elderly residents in that place. Um, we seek to serve the Muncie Mission. The executive director, Frank Baldwin of the Muncie Mission, goes to church here, is a ruling elder here, and so there's always opportunities to serve the homeless in Muncie. There's a ministry called Light in Darkness where women from the church go into adult entertainment clubs and seek to reach out to women who are trapped in that lifestyle. So a lot going on here in terms of compassion ministries and uh, an attempt to reach out to the hurting in our community. The fourth core value, discipleship. By this we mean the way we seek to learn and grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And so 2 Timothy says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Friends, if you want to be trained in righteousness, if you want to be equipped for every good work that you would be called upon to do, you must be a student of Scripture. You must be immersed in Scripture. You must sit under the teaching and preaching of Scripture. And so we value this here at New Life. And so many ways for this to happen, Sunday school, adult Sunday school, and children's Sunday school. So teachers needed um, children's church, as I've already mentioned. Uh, Andrew, leading our junior and senior high um, youth. Uh, he's the primary teacher there, but always looking for, for help, those who can come along on Sunday evenings when the junior and senior high get together. And I'm very happy to report, as I, I think most of you know, but we are hoping to start an Awana ministry here again in the fall. Um, we did Awana many years ago. Awana is a, a, a ministry for young children, helps children memorize scripture. It's a midweek ministry, very much like a VBS. And uh, we, hope, we hope to start that in the fall. But, you know, it, it's, it's not going to happen if we don't have volunteers. It, it just requires a lot of people. And so be thinking about whether you might be called to help with that. Okay, last core value evangelism. That is, we value the task of telling others about Jesus and calling them to faith. And so Acts 1, we see Jesus saying to his disciples, you'll receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. What do witnesses do? They speak about what they've seen and heard. And so we want to encourage evangel evangelism, prepare you for evangelism. So we have a missions team, for instance. The missions team plans things like the El Salvador trip. Um, the missions team looks for ways to support our missionaries who are all over the world. And uh, the missions team needs people to participate. We offer Christianity Explored here at the church a couple times a year. We need people interested in leading those studies, opening their homes. We need people willing to just invite people to come to Christianity Explored classes, which doesn't really take a lot of time. We have a marketing team. 
marketing team um, designs all of our published materials and handles all of our typographic needs here to make sure that um, it's easy to find out what's going on here at the church. Uh, we want to make good use of social, social social media website, and so we need people skilled and able uh, in those areas. And we need people, too, who are just willing to just invite people to come to church. Friends, neighbors, co-laborers, hey, come with me. I'll sit with you 1030 at New Life. That's, that's a form of evangelism, and it's something that we value here. So those are our core values. Um, I know some of you are overextended, and, and you're just thinking, I cannot do another thing. <laughs> and I understand that. And for others of you, maybe not so much. And we need your service. We need you here. Don't think, well, I haven't been here that long. I don't know that many people. I don't know much about the Bible. I've only been a Christian for a little while. I'm not funny. I'm not outgoing. I'm not charismatic. Don't let those things turn you away. We can find something for you to do. Now, here's what I'm not going to do now. I'm not going to pressure you to commit to anything. Um, I'm not going to pass out a survey for you to sign up. You'll look around your chairs. You'll see there's no green sheet of paper. Uh, I'm not sending you to the Welcome Center to sign up for anything. All I want you to do is just pray about this. We've got 30 less people, as I've been saying over and over again. We have plenty of others who have moved away. Our numbers are reduced, and we need people uh, to step up. So pray. Uh, how is God asking you to get involved? And you might want to use verse 17, and I'll just leave you with this. Verse 17, as Paul says to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I think that's just a really good passage for us to reflect on. Ask yourself, am I fulfilling the ministry that I have received from the Lord? Do I even know what that ministry is? And you might not know that. And if you want to figure out what that is, then let's talk about that. I mean, that's why we have elders and pastors here, to help you with that. So don't feel ashamed if you don't know what that is. But maybe you do know what that is. And if you do, are you fulfilling it? And if you're not, what are you doing to take steps to do so? Augustine said this, God is not greater if you reverence him, but you are greater if you serve him. And what a privilege it is to serve the family of God. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, we thank you for the great privilege of being called sons and daughters of the living King. Thank you for making us part of your family by grace. And Lord, we desire to serve you, not to earn your favor, but because you've already shown it to us. And so, Lord, I know that you have gifted so many people here in so many ways. Every person here is gifted. And so, Father, help us as we seek to fulfill the ministry that you've given us. Help us to do it in faith and in gracious response to you for your goodness to us in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.